Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and I'm here with Karen Henson. Hey! <laughs> you gotta shake it up. You gotta be different. <laughs> don't, don't let people... You literally just you. went... Hey! <laughs> Felt girly. Uh, yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. They can't see me. They gotta know. That's I'm all right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, hey, this week we are going to talk with Dr. Scott Booth and a PhD student over at Southwestern, John Harmon on archaeology. It's going to be awesome. You guys enjoy this episode. We're excited today to have a couple guys in the studio with us to talk about archaeology. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> the uh, The first one is from the Pillar Seminary in Omaha, Nebraska. His name is Dr. Scott Booth. Yep. And he has been digging at a place in Israel called Abu Beit Ma'aka. Nice. And what's cool about that? It is quite possibly the most significant archaeological site in Israel. Okay, cool. We'll hit pause on that and we'll come back to, uh, to that statement because that's intriguing. And then the other guy with us is uh, John Harmon, who is a doctoral student at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth and also has been doing archaeology for about 10 years, right? Yep. Uh, Doug, for the, the first time at Tell Dan in 2008, and then I've kind of caught the archaeology bug and dug at uh, Rehov and Gezer, and then I've been digging at Afelbate Maka since 2013, I think it was, okay, 2014. Cool. Yeah. Basically, you guys are the ones to talk about archaeology. And so let's start like this. Just a very simple question. What is archaeology? The real question being, are you Indiana Jones? Yes. Huh? Yes. 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 <laughs> That's exactly what we do. Yeah. You can't see him, but he does have an Indiana Jones hat. So it's just I'm not just on asking. his head right now. The whip is in the car. Nice. <laughs> nice. No. So yeah, for people who are like, yeah, I know that term. I know archaeology, but like, I have no idea what you guys do. What What is archaeology and what does that look like? Well, I think, I think most broadly, it's just the study of humanity's past. And particularly, it's the past as represented in material culture. Mm. And so it enables us to see beyond just what the text would tell us of more of what life on the ground looked like and how people lived and how they worked, you know, how, how society functioned. So it's kind of like a, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like a doorway to the past. Yeah. yeah Through exactly. digging this stuff up and pulling it out of the ground, we're able to see like, oh, this is, this is what it was like for them to live in the first century and what everyday life was and what they valued. and Yeah, e exactly. Because texts, whether it's the Bible or, or another historical text, only really tells us what the author wanted to focus on. And a lot of the times they're not concerned about the nitty gritty of daily life and who the neighbors were, who the next city state over yeah, the was, what next they were doing. Yeah, and, stuff, it's, yeah. um, and so it allows us to get a lot broader picture of, of ancient society. If you're talking about it from a play standpoint, it's the thing that kind of sets the stage so that the story can, we have the story, the narrative, but it's the thing that sets mm. the stage to help us understand. Yeah, like, yeah I think that's a okay. good imagery. Yeah, cool. There's some background to it that I think is helpful to so you can understand archaeology and then I think some of the pitfalls of using it and uh, or, or abusing it. So down that same train of thought, archaeology is a fairly new discipline, yeah. isn't it? So talk to us about a little bit of the overview of the history of it and how did it become the discipline that it is today? Okay, so typically that discussion kind of begins in the last 100, 150 years, mm -hmm. but like it has a richer history than that. Like mm. 
in the West dating back to Renaissance and before when they started having this big antiquities push and they wanted to go see stuff. And then also, even uh, in the East, there are Islamic scholars who were interested in it prior to the Ottoman Empire and pretty cool stuff. But I think what's important, like for the beginning of it, especially in the West, and the, it's kind of like surge of archaeology that happens in the late 1800s and 1900s, early 1900s, it's text driven, mm-hmm. which means like you, you read about all these cool cities and you want to go find them yeah. and like dig them up. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, whether like, it's the Bible or Homer or... Yeah, yeah. It, does, yeah it doesn't matter. You want to go, you know, there's nothing malicious in that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Like you want like, oh, there's Nineveh. Go find Nineveh. Let's go see what... You're wanting to like validate the text. Yeah. Or... And, like, and even understand the world of the text. Yeah. What yeah, were yeah, they yeah, in, yeah. right? But the, the, the issue is it's really driven by some textual investigation. So at that point, it's even understood as kind of the handmaiden, right? It's not its own discipline. It's serving some other need, which in this case is the study of text. And then you're like, oh, we should go find Troy and dig it up. We should find Nineveh and figure out what's there or Babylon or blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So it's driven by those inquiries. And it's also driven by like, oh, we, had, we know that great empires were there, right? We know that great empires were at Nineveh. So when you show up at Nineveh, what you're interested in is finding those empires. Yeah. And so they would like literally tunnel through it. Mm. It made me so sad. <laughs> and then we like dig because tunnels. tunneling through it is it was okay early on. Uh, yeah, well, but they're destroying a bunch of they're destroying stuff stuff when stuff they do that. Yeah, yeah. Because what they're doing is their primary motivation is to understand their text better. Yeah, and uh, so you've got to get to the yeah text, right? And also to get museum pieces. That's true. The institutions that fund them. Yeah, pieces. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if the motivation isn't trying to understand the text better what's a pure motivation in archaeology then uh yeah so <laughs> archaeology spent some time trying to figure that out mm. okay so this is super broad paint brush stuff here so there are exceptions to everything we're going to say on this because there's real early examples of people like collecting faunal data and all kinds of botanical data and stuff even in the 19 early 1900s but on the most part, you're looking for these big finds, right? That's going to wow the public or something. Because you need people to fund your dig. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Yes. Which, side wit, plug here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the like way. Yeah. <laughs> did, did I mention that Abel Maka is the most significant? <laughs> 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 All right. Anyway. Um, Needs big donors. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, anyway. So, archaeology then, trying to, the archaeologists were frustrated by this. Because the more they're in the dirt, the more they want to understand about what's going on with these people, right? So a bunch of methodological questions came up. What do we do? How do we do this thing? And they start really doing a lot of internal investigation, like philosophical inquiries about like, well, how do we do this correctly? And then you get stuff like stratification, mm-hmm. like, like, hey, we should dig like flat, right? We should follow. So by stratification, down. you mean layers? Yeah. Down. yeah. Yeah. They start figuring this out or they start putting together ceramic sequences, right? Uh, who is that, John? That's uh, uh, Petrie. Petrie. Yeah, he dug an absurd number of sites. I forget <laughs> what it was, but and and he was a, a genius. And I think mostly just by chance, he noticed that pots from different levels looked different, and they seemed to be consistent from site to site. And he, he came came up with the idea of we can look at the ceramics that the ancient people were using. And can use that as a tool for dating. Yeah, like, like, so, like, you go to one site. I guess this is going to be the stupidest thing, but like, you go down to one site and you're like, 
all the pottery here is purple and then keep digging down and then it's red and then it's blue and you mm-hmm. go to the next site and you start digging and it's red and he says oh wait a second yeah i bet these folks lived at the same and then he digs down and it's blue again he's like whoa and he does a ton of these and now you can start building a picture that has nothing to do with the text yeah right so then archae- so to get back to your original question like so what is pure archaeology or a pure motivation in archaeology i think they just want to understand the people kind of from the ground up mm, so then the text is a side to help you yeah, yeah, yeah. like identify but it's not your driving force in that sense the text becomes a tool mm. right mm. like uh to help you understand at least some perspectives about some of the things that happened to some of the people I mm. see what you did there. All right. Some, 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 some. <laughs> yeah, because well, I mean, we think of the text and you think, oh, well, this is a big view of what happened. Well, tell me from the Bible, for example, what was daily life like? Yeah. Mm. Good luck. Also, archaeology becomes a text in itself. That's right. And so you have the biblical text that, that gives one perspective and you have archaeology that can potentially give like a broader perspective. Yeah. And then a scholar who wants to recreate the history of the Bible or the history of the ancient world can draw on a written text. and But it's not just limited to the Bible. I mean, there are right. any of these texts that oh, are yeah. from that world. So like to use the metaphor we we're talking about earlier is this is like a stage that's being set, but it's almost like a like on a studio lot. You have these stages that can be used for multiple things. And yep. so like, hey, OK, so the Bible plays out on this part over here, but then the Babylonian texts play out over here and yep. the Hittite texts play out over here. And, and they're so, all trying to tell you something. Yeah. Right. They're all trying to convince you of something and make you think something. Yeah. And they're also a lot more interrelated than most of the time people give. Yeah. That's, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So the thing that's neat about archaeology is that you can collect a ton of raw data, right? So for example, you can get down to what kind of food were they eating? Cause you can go on the inside of their pots. So you can collect seeds and stuff, right? Which, if you know what kind of food they're eating, you can know who they're trading. If you can, is it a keto diet? It's keto. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes. Um, but one of the things that's also interesting about it, like the motivations of a text are locked, mm. right? So like in the Bible, they're trying to convince you that the Lord is God. Mm. And they're trying to tell you certain things about him, right? And it's locked. Mm. You can't change that. Yeah. But in, ar- in archaeology, you, you, now you approach a site and you'll be very explicit. You'll say, all right. We're going to get as much raw data as we can, but understand that our motivations here are this, this, and this. And you never dig a site completely, right? Because the next person is going to come along and say, all right, we're going to shift our motivations here. We now have new questions to ask. Mm -hmm. So you have a kind of, it's not the exact same data because you destroyed it as you went through it, but you can approach a site now with new questions. New questions that have arisen because of, the work you've done. All manner of things. Yeah. Uh, it, it could be you're asking a regional question. Like, yeah. Like, I want to know what, okay, these people lived here. Like, who did they trade with? Who was in, and why does it matter who they trade with? Because then you know who they're influencing and who's influencing them, right? And you can track patterns of behavior and like, really neat stuff that we all kind of take for as assumptions in daily life. You can start slowly peeling back those layers. Something that I think is interesting that I've learned about you, Scott, um, just tracking with you, which, by the way, I'll plug this right now. Uh, Scott, along with the faculty at Pillar, does a Pillar podcast. Woohoo! And uh, 
And and uh, would definitely encourage you guys to check that out. You can just go find it on uh, iTunes and are you on like Google Play and stuff like that as well? Who knows? I don't. I don't yeah, know whatever. Yeah, go find it. But uh, it's definitely worth listening to. But one of the things that I've learned about you is you did your PhD thesis on how to read the data that comes out of the ground. So talk to us about like everybody's digging this stuff up, but is there a certain way that you know one guy's going to dig it up and he's going to be like well this means this mm. and another guy's going to dig up maybe something very similar and say yeah. that means something yeah. totally different and uh, i think the heart of the question is how do we trust archaeology how do we trust that the results that are coming mm. out of it are reflective of what was actually going on um you trust it because they're very very good at what they do yeah. so in terms of like a bunch of data comes out of the ground and they're going to interpret it differently that's just part of any science Mm -hmm. right where they're just struggling to get enough information and enough debate to wrestle with information and while it's up in the air uh, or being debated you just allow that to be a little bit wet cement until and and you got to be okay with that as any discipline you have to be okay with the struggle so in terms of what's the right way to do it on the outside is to trust the specialist Mm -hmm. because they are very good at it. And the discipline itself has a lot of checks in place to say, hey, this person's fringe mm. and or this this set of ideas, these are worth debating. Yeah. Over here, yeah. this is crazy town. We now know, right? <laughs> is that oh, yeah. fair, John? <laughs> Definitely. And also the issues that, that are debatable and debated, most good scholars acknowledge that and, and say, this is an ongoing conversation and this is where the data leads us. But like the fringe guys are more, they're usually more have their heels dug in a bit more. It's like, this is absolutely the way it was. Yeah. Yeah. You'll also find them like attached to text in a certain way Mm -hmm. and you'll, you'll feel them going backwards. And see, that's what I was going to ask. Like, how do you leave these presuppositions at the door to to walk (laughs) into a site? (laughs) Like that feels impossible it is uh, you, you just do your best to say what they are so this is the thing archaeology isn't a hard science right none of what archaeology does can be repeated yeah right like because you destroy the evidence yeah, yeah. as you go it can be almost repeated so it's not a soft science. you know it's not completely soft because you can while like so if, let's say we dig at avel we're digging a room right and we come up with a thesis about what's going on here it's based on the data we pulled out maybe we missed some but you'll never get that back. Yeah, That's also why we record everything, everything. as meticulously as we can, because we want to be able to reconstruct it theoretically on paper because right. we can't physically reconstruct. How, how do you record it? Oh, no. Well, we dig stratigraphically, like, you know, layer by layer. Uh, material gets, gets laid down, you know, as people live. And over the centuries, it builds up, mm-hmm. up and up on itself. And we're able to discern that as we dig. And so we keep all of the material from the same layer together and we record it together. And as there are different features, we note those and record them. Basically, we keep everything as separate as we can and everything as precise as we can. So do you like when you pull stuff out of the ground, are you like separating it based on, hey, we think this belongs with this other stuff that we have dug up and we're going to put it in this container and... No, Mark we actually up. put it in a container. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. You nailed it. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. So you put it in a container and then it's like, okay, we think this is what this is. So it's not when you say destroy it, 
you mean yeah, just the, the it's just no longer destroyed. in the place where it originally yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. And, you're and not like taking a hammer and burning it. Yeah, yeah. Like and and so the reason you're doing that is because you're developing theories as you go down, right? Right. But you want to prove yourself wrong too, mm-hmm. because you're going to go down in the in the house next door, and you want to be able to say, "Oh, that was different." But you didn't destroy the information so much so that you can't go back and say, oh, you know. That's what that is. Because as you're going through and you're peeling these layers back, you're digging down with a, a pick and some you're scraping through, right? And you think, ah, I've come to a new layer, mm. right? And you'll mark it. Mm-hmm. Well, what if you're wrong? Yeah, right. Here's the thing. The discipline has been doing it long enough that there's all these checks to say, hey, you know what? We thought this was two. It's one. We thought this was one. I think it's two. And like... There's a lot of ways to make sure that you can catch yourself. It's not perfect, but it's it's almost robust. like a, yeah, it's almost like you're looking through a, a really dirty lens, and the longer you do it, the cleaner the lens gets. Yeah. So like uh, we couldn't really see this 50 years ago, but now we know because we're doing it for 50 years that these kinds of checks are clarifying what when we encounter this thing, then we were able to better discern what that is. We're we're yeah. seeing it more clearly. Yeah. Yeah. So help us understand what a day looks like for y'all. Like you're going to a site, you don't just like pick up a shovel and dig, right? So what does a day look like? It's much slower than I think a lot of people would anticipate. Yeah. Well, uh, possibly, uh, but also a a lot of people imagine us just out there digging with dental picks and brushes and we actually move a lot of dirt because often areas would get backfilled after they're occupied. And so when you know that you're digging through just garbage, have to get through it pretty pretty Move. quick. Yeah, yeah. So, that means like to back it. What mean like someone is living in an area and a house falls down or something? They'll like level it, yeah. fill it up, make just, it flat. Right? Just like we do now. Like yeah, totally. you'll see people knock down a, a building and they'll fill the basement in with the debris from the building. Yep. But the typical day starts really early. What, what time? What time do we usually get on the bus? It's two like, thirty. No, I don't know. No, it's <laughs> it not. feels like no, it. I think it's what? five five fifteen. Yeah. We're on the bus. Is that right? Um, your your picks are picks like are in that. the ground as the sun is coming up. Yeah, because yeah. it's too hot to dig in yeah, the midday. Right. So as soon as the sun is on the horizon and you can see well enough to swing weapons, um, then <laughs> in close proximity, then then you're going after. <laughs> then you're doing it. So how long does a dig season last? Usually four to six weeks. And what does that entail? Just the just the actual swinging of the pick and the scraping and the. Well, usually you spend about a week getting everything set up and clearing out the things that have gotten overgrown in the year since mm-hmm. the last dig. Because that, that's not the other thing that maybe not everybody knows is typically we dig uh, during the summer. So we're, we're only digging about a month out of, out of the year at, at most sites. And so you spend about a week clearing out the overgrowth and the, the debris, wash. the wash, the backwash from you know, the rainy season. So you clean it before you. Destroy. Yeah, and why why is, why is that? Why do we only dig six weeks out of the year? Um, I'm married. <laughs> <laughs> why do let me phrase, let me phrase it? Why doesn't somebody dig throughout the year? Part of it is the climate because you want to dig when it's dry because if if you're in the middle of a, a season and you get a downpour, it, no bueno. It's, yeah. Uh, you can deal with it because people still do archaeology in wetter climates, but it's definitely more manageable to dig during the dry season. And also, since it's driven by academia, you know, uh, most dig directors are professors and a lot of um, staff members are, are students. And so it just it, it just kind of works out that you do it 
during the summer when everybody's available. Talk to us about when you pull stuff out of the dirt, how long does it take before you realize what you have? Oh, geez. Depends on what it is. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we know pretty immediately and other times it's, we have no idea what we just pulled out. Mm-hmm. So we should say there's like, one of the things that's super helpful is pottery sorting. Yeah. So while you're going down, you know, you, you've been on an excavation, there's so much pottery, yeah, right? Yeah, right. So you collect most of it yeah. and you stick it in buckets that's labeled so that you know where everything comes from. And then in the you wash it all off, get it clean to make sure um, you can erase any inscriptions on it. <laughs> uh, so you, you clean it all off. And then once it's dried out the following day or whatever, you sit down at a table and you start sorting it. And these are experts. So we have at Avel, we have uh, Nava. She's amazing. And Bob, right? They're sitting there and they're working, looking at it, say, hey, you know, at this site over here, this belongs to this period. And oh, oh. And so you're starting to form pictures Mm -hmm. as you're moving through the information. So sometimes it's days until you really know what you were in. I mean, you have suspicions because there's pottery that will tell you, oh, you're in iron one, you're in iron two, Mm -hmm. whatever. And iron one and two are like the various ages. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of times I think people have the misconception that because they have an Indiana Jones type mentality where they're like, you know, the the golden idol comes out of the ground and you like know exactly what it is immediately. And, and it's, right. it's this really kind of just excitement around all of it. When in reality, the discipline is much more like, okay, we have something here and it may be a while before you realize what that th- thing is. Yeah, it can be years until you're understanding yeah. what you're going yeah, through. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Like it's weird. Which like, people are like, well, well, it's publications can take a long oh, time yeah, because yeah. I mean, Im- imagine you're peeling layers across, right? Even on one site, right? Like even in, in your yard, right? You're peeling, you dig down in your backyard, you're digging down in your front yard. Try to figure out to correlate those exactly, right? Well, then you've got like 50 of those, 60, 100 of those. Like how do you then understand what was going on at that site from 1100 BC to 1000 BC? Mm-hmm given all those different things from all different parts of the site and they're not connected. It's just, you're digging these patches Mm. and you're trying to connect the patches and it's, it's complicated. So you bounce theories around with each other. You argue, there's lots of yelling. (laughs) Yeah. If you have three archeologists together, you have at least four theories. That's right. (laughs) But that's just because they're, they're sorting through really complicated information. And I should say again, they're really good at it Yeah, because They've been doing it. So as we've been talking about this, like our listeners may be thinking, you're pulling up a bunch of pottery chunks out of the ground and washing it. Like what? what's helpful about that? So help us understand what we can gain from this discipline. Like what do we gain from y'all spending six weeks in hot Israel digging up pottery? What What's helpful to us? I think the biggest thing is is just what life on the ground looked like for the ancient people. Maybe not the biggest thing, but a significant thing. It provides context as if you're reading the Bible or reading Homer or reading some other piece of literature. You only get the perspective that the author presents to you. Mm -hmm. And and they might not care what the guy down the street was doing. They might not care what the average, how the average person lived. Or they may assume that you know. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. that's a good Mm -hmm. point. Yeah, They think you understand. There's a lot of assumptions. It's written to a particular audience. Yeah, I I think the biggest thing for uh, a reader of the Bible that archaeology provides is just context. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the social historical world that the text took place in that's that's very foreign to 
the average person today. So if you guys can, give us, give us an example of a way that that shows up. Okay, so I just picked up this book. It's an investigation into where did the tribes of Israel go. And one of the things that they're looking at is after Israel is conquered by Assyria, right? It's like, what, well, what happened to them? Where did they go, right? And so they look at what happened in the south, and they see an influx archaeologically of material that's typically in the north. Mm. Well, like, so why do you care? Right? Yeah. But if you go read the prophets and you go read the book of Kings, there's all these warnings about behaving like they did in the north. Mm. And so it's one thing to say theologically, oh, it's just like, don't do what those guys did over there, blah, blah, blah. But if you can contextualize their world better mm-hmm. and understand that, like, they just got a whole bunch of new neighbors. Yeah. And these neighbors just experienced this deportation. Mm-hmm. Right? And you can start to see that when the prophets are speaking, they're speaking into a world where the northern influence is coming down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so like the, the literally. Yes. And so then materially the, coming down. Yes. And the cultural <laughs> and the cultural influence would be there. Right. And if the more you can contextualize and make the people of the Bible people and really understand not some abstract yeah, world that yeah. the more you can keep your theology from being an abstract. Yeah. World, yeah they, right. So they are thinking that you understand for example, the role of women in their society, when they bring that up and they're talking about it, they have all these assumptions. But how do you, we don't know what that is, yeah, yeah. right? And so our assumptions are definitely different. They are totally different, yeah. right? And so being able to do things like, for example, um, certain pottery, bunches of it had to have been made by women. Well, how do they know? Because men's hands don't fit down to make it, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen these studies? Yeah. Where it's either women or children, like this is how this pottery is. Well, that helps you start forming a, an understanding of how society is working. Mm-hmm. Right? You put all this stuff together, and then when you're reading the verses, these are real people, and you're understanding who they're talking to. And so it feels like the roles have sort of switched. So when we started this conversation, you were like, hey, for an archaeologist, the text is a tool. And so for somebody who's reading the scripture, then archaeology can be a tool. Is yeah, that right? exactly. Like, hey, you pull that in and you can better understand these were real people who were living a real life. And as I read the Bible, then I can understand better what that author was trying to tell me because I have context for what kind of world they were living in. Right. So like another example of this is like, well, what happens when, when we tell you that there's very little evidence that the Lord was followed throughout Judea and Israel. Be like, what? Yeah, like there's <laughs> very little evidence. There's cult stuff, or at least acor- the following the Lord according to the way Deuteronomy and Leviticus lay out. If you do that, then you're like, oh no, the Lord had to have been followed by all these people. Like, mm-hmm. no, yeah. go read the prophets. Like, yeah, they, yeah, they spent yeah. a lot of time telling people they need to be followed. Yeah, the Lord, <laughs> so, so the it shouldn't picture, be surprising uh, that they weren't. That's right. So the you start to develop an on-the-ground view that this pure Yahwism that the Bible is advocating mm-hmm. was not, not followed very often yeah, right. at all. Right. right? And this get, another really cool one is the one we're talking about on the way here, uh, Dan. So yeah, speaking, about Dan. Of, speaking of the, the difference site. between the north and the south and Israel and Judah, if you read... Real, real quickly for our listeners, so around uh, 931 BC-ish, there was a king of Israel who was acting crazy. And so the the kingdom divided into right. two different kingdoms. And the northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom is called Judah. So right. that's and what he's alluding to. So he's about to tell you about what the first king in the north did. Jeroboam. Dun, dun, dun. Now we've contextualized what you're about hey, to yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> so as you read the Bible, uh, they have a lot of condemnation of the northern practices. And you would kind of assume that they were just a bunch of completely apostate pagans who aren't trying to worship the Lord at all because uh, Jeroboam established new sanctuaries at uh, Dan and... New priesthood. Yeah, exactly. and um, Golden calves. <laughs> not Yahweh stuff. Well, well you, uh, you would think it was not Yahweh stuff. The, the, Bi- <laughs> the, the Bible might lead you to believe it was not Yahweh stuff. Or the way you're, you're reflex in reading the Bible. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. You, you might assume from reading the Bible that, that they weren't worshiping Yahweh because, uh, cause your lens is the, dirty. Yeah, because the, the prophets from Judah, you know, saw them as apostate, saw them as unfaithful, uh, worshipers of Yahweh. And so you assume that they had just completely left it all behind. But then when we excavated it at Tel Dan, there's a religious precinct that looks very much like what the Bible describes as proper Yahweh worship. Yeah, they're so, doing Leviticus. So mm-hmm. it seems like they... With those golden calves. They thought that they were worshiping Yahweh mm-hmm. properly. Could it have been... I'm sure there's a bunch of theories about this, but um, just a syncretism between... Yeah, yes. yeah that's it. that's exactly what, what Syncretism is like blending, right. uh, blending religious practices so when you're so what happens this is where again helps us read the text because when you go to kings you think oh they they turned to to worship other gods when they did the golden calf no 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 and you go and look at it more carefully and you read kings again it says oh they're distinguishing between deviant yahweh worship which jeroboam brings in Mm -hmm. and ahab actually brings in state-sponsored uh worship of baal Baal, or foreign gods right so what Jeroboam does is deviant, and that's why they're mad. Mm. It's pagan, and this, but but it still has this Yahwist. It's totally like, Yahwist. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. It's just broken according to the Bible, according with the South. the purity of yeah, of the yeah. Lives, yeah. In a sense, it gives you a lot more nuanced perspective of it because you might assume, oh, these people are just overtly, flagrantly violating the the law and completely rejected the Lord. But it seems like they at least didn't think they had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which makes you read prophets to the north differently. Yeah. Totally. Right. I mean, and have, I think, even more compassion mm. on the sin of Jeroboam. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, because what he does is actually worship Yahweh, but according to his cultural reflex rather than according to what scripture is asking you to do and if you put it in that those terms that's terrifying that's terrifying yeah right are you worshiping the lord as as he's warning you to or are you doing it according to your cultural reflex and good luck with that makes you uh, wonder about the church in america yeah Uh, yeah now Now that we're sufficiently scared okay well (laughs) we're gonna stop there for now (laughs) (laughs) so that's my archaeology that's why archaeology from the everyday believer perspective, because it will help us understand the text. And if we can understand the text and we can start asking those kinds of questions. That's the right questions. But in order to get there, you've got to let archaeology do its thing. You've got to step away, quit trying to tell it what it has to do and what it has to look like. Learn to live in the tension. That's right. Oh, and we have to see these dates of these destructions and like, no, 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 let it go. Let it run its course. Stop trying to run it. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. If you liked it, tell your friends, subscribe, leave us a rating. Is that what they do on iTunes? You can rate it. 
I, I think so. Please I, rate it yeah. if you can do that on iTunes. Yeah, I think so. I don't know what comes next. What do you desperately want people to do? Email us. Email us. Where should they email us? At equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Bye. Peace. Peace.